everyone. Today's guest on Fashion for All, the Smart Glamour podcast, is Reagan Chastain. I apologize for the different audio quality of this intro as I'm recording it on my phone instead of using my microphone setup, as I just moved this weekend. Reagan falls under the media category of types of guests we'll be chatting with on the podcast. I'll let her introduce herself properly. We touch on how she got into the work she does now, why we both hate when brands don't understand the definition of the words all and every. She gives tips for folks to self-advocate, and she tells us about her kindergarten protest. Enjoy our conversation. Hi there. Hey, Mallory. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Reagan Chastain, and uh, for the past eight years, I've been a professional speaker and writer, and my focus is on size acceptance, health at every size, and ending weight stigma. Woo! (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like uh, I can't remember the exact person that suggested you to me back so many years ago. I actually remember the second person that suggested you to me and I was like, oh, yes, I already follow that person. Um, So could you tell me a little bit about how how that became your job? Like how like uh, how do you how does one even make that your job? (laughs) (laughs) Extreme luck and privilege. So I started off, um, I was a uh, operations consultant, a business operations consultant. And um, as a hobby, I was doing competitive ballroom dance. And because of the weight stigma I had experienced in ballroom dance and my own journey into health at every size and size acceptance, I had started a blog called Dances with That. And the blog started to gain some traction and get a little bit popular. And then I started to get requests to write for other folks and to speak at at places, and which I really loved. I've always loved public speaking and I've always loved activism and I've always done it to some extent. Uh, And so as that you know, those invitations grew, I decided I wanted to leave the work I have been doing and pursue this full time. And so that's what I've done. And so I do, I still blog, I do a lot of social media work. Um, I have a membership that supports, because a lot of the work I do is, of course, unpaid, it's, you know, on Facebook or getting emails and replying. And, you know, I get somewhere between eight and 10,000 emails most months of people looking wow. for help and support. Uh, so yeah. And then you mentioned the um, because most of that's unpaid, you have like a, a membership. Is that what you called it? Yeah, I started with my blog and I just called it a voluntary subscription. I was like, you can read mm-hmm. it either way. But if you want to kick in like 10 bucks a month, you can totally do that. And so that now I just call the dances with that membership. And those folks get deals on all of my stuff. They get my monthly workshop for free and, you know, so that they're supporting me and then I'm able to support them as well. And that is mm. what allows me to do a lot of the work they do, especially with COVID, because of course I'm not traveling like I would be. Right. So you basically like created Patreon before Patreon existed. <laughs> exactly. And now I, everybody's like, why don't you switch to Patreon? I'm like, do you know how hard it was to set this up back then? Like, I keep uh, like yeah, asking people to switch platforms. For t- yeah, for sure. I've had a few people ask me if I would set up a Patreon, and I'm just like, do you know how much work it takes to? make clothes and set up and run a rent a website i don't know how i could run a second one yeah most of the time i'm just yapping or writing i don't actually have to produce clothing work products so <laughs> i don't know how you do it oh me neither sometimes um <laughs> i'm just grateful that you do oh thank you um 
when you do, when you are traveling, when it's not COVID time, what kind of places are bringing you in to speak most of the time? So it's predominantly conference, uh, cor- sorry, predominantly colleges and then conferences second and then sometimes corporations. Mm. Uh, and I've gone to do some fun. Like I got to speak at Google headquarters, which is exactly as ridiculous as everybody says. It. Um, <laughs> the one in, in California? Yeah. Uh, like okay. I had to go to the bathroom and they were like, yeah, like take a left at the bowling alley, go past the dance studio and it's going to be on your right by the uh, nursery. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I have a, a very small um, tie slash awareness of what that is because um, I've been to the New York City headquarters because my brother-in-law works there. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's obviously not the same as the California one, which is like an entire campus, but um for a New York City office building, it is bonkers. <laughs> it was it was something. And uh, obviously, Google is problematic in any number of ways. But just, mm-hmm. you know, having heard about what their headquarters is like. And, like, we were in an offshoot building. It wasn't even the main building that had a bowling alley and a dance studio in it. Like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was a whole other thing. Um, but, yeah, mostly I speak at colleges. And pretty diverse. I've gotten to speak at Dartmouth and Caltech and also, like, Texas A&M. Uh, oh. To a group that were doing a rural healthcare project and wanted to talk about weight stigma within that project. So I've gotten to speak. I've been very lucky and, like I said, a lot of privilege to speak at a lot of very cool places. Wow, that's really great. Um, can you talk a bit about? I actually have had so far one other person on the podcast who um, does health and every size, but through uh, dietitian work. Um, Veronica Garnett. I don't know if you are aware of her. Um, but I'm curious, uh, first of all, how you came to Health at Every Size, and second of all, how you may personally define it as far as it goes for like for the things that you speak on. Got it. I came to it on as part of a personal journey. I had uh, had an eating disorder between high school and college, and um, I, <laughs> despite being in treatment for an eating disorder, continued to be prescribed diets by my doctors, which mm-hmm. is a thing that should not happen, but sadly often does. And so I had had the same experience that I later learned basically everyone has, which is I would lose weight short term and gain it back long term. And I was luckily, lucky enough not to have it turn into a full relapse. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I just, I wasn't succeeding. And so I decided because my focus in school was research methods and statistical analysis, but I never looked at any of the studies for any of the diets I did. So I decided I was going to read all the research I could find, do my own literature review and find the best diet. I was going to find the diet that worked the most. Wow. And so having read, you know, hundreds of studies and I actually read them all and I was so completely shocked that I went back and I read them all again. I was doing calculations by hand. I was like, surely I'm missing something. But the truth is there wasn't a single study where more than like a tiny fraction of people succeeded at long-term weight loss. And by succeeded, they often meant losing five to 10 pounds, which like I could lose five pounds right now with a haircut and a good loofah. (laughs) I don't need two years of a diet intervention to get that done. And so I was like, okay, because I was so, you know, I'm a fan of research and logic and math and science. I was like, all right. So sounds like being thin is not an option for me. Like there's no reason to believe that this is ever going to work. So what else is there? And that's kind of, that was what drove me to find health at every size. And for me, I believe uh, health is not an obligation. Mm -hmm. It's not a barometer of worthiness. It's not entirely within our control and it's not anybody Mm -hmm. else's business unless we ask them to make it our business. And I think people who want to work on public health need to work on bringing down the barriers to health 
you know, racism is a public health crisis in this country, but we treat it like an inconvenience for people of color to deal with on their own. So like when people talk about like, I care about fat people's health, I'm like, what are you doing to end weight stigma within medical care? Mm-hmm. Right. What are you doing to end weight stigma within health insurance? Like, tell me what you're doing actually for fat people's health besides telling fat people to become thin people, which I'm not interested in and isn't research based. So most of my work is around letting people know, like, there are ways to pursue health outside of uh, trying to become a smaller person. Mm -hmm. And like, here are the options for that. And here's what the research shows. So I do a lot of because of my background, I do a lot of like uh, taking apart research and explaining it and explaining like why, like this study looks like people succeeded, but actually 70% of them dropped out. So this is only like 30% of the people lost five pounds in two years, but they're saying that everyone Mm -hmm. did, you know, so I do a lot of explaining about the logic behind the studies. Um, But yeah, so that is most of my work is around that. And then around working on uh, ending weight stigma and especially intersectional weight stigma, because it affects like trans people often can't get gender confirmation procedures unless they're under a certain BMI. Right. And then the, you know, the intersection of medical racism and medical fat phobia is horrible and ableism and healthism and fat phobia. So I work a lot in those intersections as well. Mm -hmm. Which why anything at all has anything to do with BMI anymore is just astounding to me. I mean, it should have never done, never had anything to do with it in the beginning at all. Uh, because that's not what it was created for. But like, I mean, it's 2020. Why are we still holding on to BMI? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, and it's because insurance companies used it to, as a cheap way to exclude people. It used to be in the pre-Obamacare days, people could be excluded from insurance based on pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. And insurance companies were allowed to consider a certain BMI level, a pre-existing condition. So my entire existence was a pre-existing condition that excluded me from insurance for about 14 years. Wow. They simply didn't have to cover me. Oh, man. And so that, like, it just got, like, ingrained in our culture. And now it's this combination of diet companies having to forward this message so that they can, you know, remain viable. They $20 million in 2012, seven, or sorry, $20 billion in 2012, $72 billion in 2018. This industry is growing exponentially, which couldn't happen if their product worked. Like that's just so irritating. Like you don't grow by fifty billion dollars with a product that makes people thin. You'd right. Everyone, everyone would be done. <laughs> yeah. It's so the whole thing is so frustrating. But yeah, I totally agree. The idea of denying surgeries and what the thing that is like making me more angry than anything right now is people who are denied. You can't have arthroscopic knee surgery because we consider it's dangerous because you're so fat. Well, what do you recommend? Weight loss surgery. What? If you can mutilate my perfectly healthy digestive system, you can just fix my knee. Just go ahead and do that. Mm. Like, I, so, yeah, there's a whole lot of frustration around that for me. Yeah, actually, I mean, I see people um, talking about weight bias in the medical industry. I mean, almost every day, I feel like on, on one of my timelines somewhere. But but truly, just today, one of my models was posting about it and um she's had a recent experience with it and then she actually shared your recent post in her story and uh-huh. was like and was like yes how how many times have i had to say you know well what would you diagnose me with if i was thin yeah <laughs> yeah that's my and i i mean i teach like a whole workshop around dealing with fat phobia in healthcare which shouldn't be something we have to learn how to do but is but like to me that's the key question like what would you give a thin person with this health issue 
Because even if even if they believe that dieting works despite a complete lack of evidence, they should still give you the same intervention they would give a thin person. If they, like I shouldn't be able to be thin, come in and get an evidence based intervention. But if I'm fat and come in with the exact same symptoms, I get well try to become thin, and if that doesn't solve the problem, then we'll give you like no 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 you you treat the patient in the body they have. You don't withhold treatment until they become thin. Truly. Um, that's so, uh, wonderful and incredible that you had this research background to be able to, um, break all this down first for yourself and now for everyone else. Um, were you, I mean, you said you were so shocked you read it again. Do you mean like you really expected to find one that was just going to be like, oh, this is the one that works and I just didn't find it yet? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, so besides white supremacy and white privilege, the idea that I could be thin, that anybody could be thin if they tried hard enough has been sold to me more aggressively than anything else in my life, mm-hmm. right? Not just by the diet industry, but also by doctors and other healthcare practitioners, right? The idea that that's the path to health and everyone who tries hard enough can do it. And so reading study after study after study where almost everybody regained their weight, up to 66% of people regained more than they lost, right? This is a prescription that has the opposite of the intended effect of the majority of the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This, is not, this does not remotely meet the requirements of ethical evidence-based medicine. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that doctors are prescribing it to 60% of their patients is horrifying. And I just, I couldn't believe that that could be true. Like that this was, you know, not just this huge industry with the diet industry, but just this huge thing within the medical industry and that there was literally not a single study to rest this advice on. <sighs> yeah. It's, it is, it is truly mind boggling that that would be the case. I just like, I think that's such a specific, um, story uh, and like, like tangible, uh, picture in my mind to like see somebody reading through so many studies and then like being shocked and like rereading through them all. Oh my goodness. But I'm so glad you're able to do that. Um, so my next question is going to be, um, a little swerve over to the fashion lane for a moment. Um, and I know, and we will get to our longstanding frustration with people that use the word all when they don't mean it. So I'm going to ask that you leave that part out for a second if, if you were going to bring it up. But I'm just curious in general, alongside all of this, um, both pre- doing this research and coming to healthy uh health at every size and after what ha- what was and what has been your relationship to fashion uh yeah i've never been like a huge um fashionista part of that is because i was raised in extremely rural america mm-hmm. and so it just wasn't a thing like um and mm-hmm. it just you know i think the the like what i call capital f fashion world that i grew up with was you know the ways that it was rooted in uh, racism and in elitism, you know, and I'm better than you because I'm wearing something that is considered cool by other people that, that, Mm -hmm. that really struck, like just left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, and then my interest in the idea of fashion actually came through my fat activism Mm -hmm. because I started to, as I was like reaching out, because when I started this, I didn't realize there was like a whole community. Like when I started the dance of fat blog, there's some pretty embarrassing posts because I didn't know people have been doing this work since the sixties. It's not, it, they're not good. Uh, but <laughs> I was like, I'm the first person to think of this. Like, nah, not even close. <laughs> um, but 
seeing people who were so empowered by getting to like have a personal style by having what they wanted to wear available to them in their size was really uh, eye-opening for me and that got me interested and then seeing the ways that companies excluded people sometimes on purpose you know the we you know we fit what was it Abercrombie and Fitch we fit the cool kids and so that's why we don't sell plus sizes Mm -hmm. Right. So seeing the ways that weight stigma was really driving the fashion world also got me interested because whether or not something is like my thing, injustice, is like I led my first protest in kindergarten. <laughs> Anything that I perceive to be unjust has always like made me want to do something about it, whether it's my thing or not. And so I think that was sort of how I started to interact with the fashion world is like I, you know, this has never been my particular area of interest, but I want people who are interested to have the access that they want to have. Mm-hmm. What was your kindergarten protest? <laughs> I I really liked reading and like learning when I was a kid. And so I thought when you went to school, it was going to be all learning all the time, wall to wall. And so I went to half day kindergarten and there was like just a lot of coloring involved and like playing <laughs> and taking naps. And I was not about that. And so I posted, I protested nap time by getting all the kids in my class to pound on their desks and chant, we want to learn. Oh, yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was exactly as obnoxious as that sounds. So I, the, my report card said, you know, Reagan is a, I think Reagan is a conscientious student, but she leads small revolts. And so my mom was like, what is this? Oh. And I was like, it wasn't small. It was the whole class and I don't meet the afternoon kindergarten. So I couldn't get them involved in my soon to be long suffering mother had to explain like she's not saying it was too small that's not oh, the problem my gosh yeah uh that quote from your kindergarten report card needs to be like your your slogan <laughs> reagan is a conscientious student but she leads small roles i should have that tattooed on me somewhere <laughs> that is so funny i can't get over it um <laughs> Also, just a five-year-old who's like, you know, this is too much coloring and fun time. I need more books. Thank you, please. Yeah, I was severely anti-nap as a kid anyway. And like now I'd give anything. To, I'm like, for a little blue mat and like then some cookies afterwards, I would do basically anything. Yeah, but truly. as a kid, I was like incredibly anti-nap. And so that was kind of the last one. Like every day we do this every day. Like I could do this all. Really? So yeah. <laughs> That is too funny. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, so I want to bring it back to you bringing up um, elitism in the in the fashion industry and and how pretentious it is because that is who I don't know if there's a number one gripe of mine with the fashion industry, but if there if there is, that is very close up there. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's one of the things that made me switch colleges halfway through. Um, which I don't know if you know that about me. I went to FIT uh -huh. for two years and then um, they basically pushed the interest in fashion out of me. Wow. <laughs> um, and I, and their program is you can, you know, you go two years and you get your associates and then you can keep going and then have a full bachelor's or you can leave or, or whatever you want to do basically. But, um, and I thought about it and thought about it. And I talked to people in the fashion program who were in the next two years. And I was just like, you know what? I don't want to do this. Um, and so I left and I went and got a teaching degree um, in art and design at Pratt instead. And then while I was at Pratt, I really missed fashion because I missed making things and tried to swerve it back and blah, blah, blah. And, 
a million years later, now here we are. But um, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I've been interested in fashion all like <laughs> since kindergarten. Um, and I loved clothes, always loved clothes, and never knew that that was a job you can have. Uh, thought it sounded like I'm going to grow up and be a princess. Like I'm going <laughs> to grow up and make clothes. Doesn't didn't sound realistic to me. And uh, when I got to high school, my high school had a fashion program. And I was like, whoa, what? Uh, so jumped into that, then realized you can go to college for it, all this stuff. And I had very um, grand ideas in my mind of what having a job as a fashion designer meant. And I thought, oh, I'll go to college and I'll really learn how to make clothes the right way. And then I'll just leave and I'll just make clothes and sell them to people. Which um, is now what I do now, but uh, that was not what FIT was trying to get me to do. Um, and then also just the environment of FIT and the environment of the people that go there, the teachers that teach there, um, the way other people talked about fashion around me. Um, it really was just a huge wake up call to what the industry truly actually is that I was not prepared for. And I can't stand the idea that some people are better than others because they own something that somebody else decided was cool, basically. Um, never understood it. I don't understand it. I won't understand it. Um, and it's and it's a real shame because uh, the actual act of wearing clothes and, and expressing yourself and having fun um is why so many people get into fashion and then it's immediately pushed away from you. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that's also something you brought up as a problem because I think it's a huge problem within the fashion industry and it's, it just ties into the um, much, much bigger problems within the industry of, uh, you know, killing the planet and, <laughs> And including people and and all on all that terrible stuff and racism and ableism and just just a nightmare of things. Um <laughs> so let's let's now bring up what I brought up before that very often you are writing a blog post addressing the next company that came out and proclaimed we make clothes for everyone without realizing that everyone has a definition. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a two-hour podcast, right? So I have time to, you know, um, Yeah, so this is a frustrating thing to me, and I started seeing it a lot. And especially, so I'm a size 26, 28. Uh, so there's a privilege with that in that, you know, most brick-and-mortar plus-size stores cover me. You know, a lot of online spaces cover me, but I'm also an athlete. And, you know, so often 3X, like, they'll say, we go to 3X, and when I calculate it out, they'd have to go to 12X to fit me right? Mm -hmm. Based on like how they size those clothes. And so there's a lot of times when I would see, oh, all shapes and sizes and then click on it and it wouldn't, they wouldn't fit me. Right. And so I'm like, I am, I'm not a shape. I'm not a size. I'm not a person. <laughs> like I have a birth certificate. I feel like I exist. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and that's worse. Like my partner is super fat. And so there's even fewer places that fit her. And so it's to me saying all, we make clothes for all shapes and sizes when you don't is dehumanizing people in the service of hyperbole for profit yes and i just can't let that go that's not mm -hmm. okay and if they're trying if the brand is trying to be inclusive in other ways 
I want to make it clear before I just put them on blast in my blog or whatever, I will, I reach out to the company and say like, if you could just say we fit extra small to four X, like just right. be honest and then you won't be harming people. And we all appreciate that you go up to four X that's higher than a lot of brands go. So thanks for that. And we hope that you are going to expand because there's still people who don't have access you know, to these clothes, but like, could you please just not lie about what you do? And then if they don't, you know, if they don't make a change, then I say something, but it's, it's very frustrating to me, especially brands that are otherwise like trying to be really inclusive, but they're still fine. Or I think my favorite response I ever got was, well, we dream of making clothes for all sizes. <laughs> I was like, I dream of being in a Broadway show, but I'm not telling people I'm in a Broadway show. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how that works. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so, I mean yeah. that's 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 I think the part that that uh is mind-boggling the most to me is that like the majority of people who are talking about this specific issue, like obviously people want the access to the clothing and they want other people to have access to the clothing who are larger than them. But what we're really talking about is just don't use those words if you don't mean them. Um you can do exactly what you're doing. Don't change a thing if you don't want to or you feel you're unable. But don't lie about what you're doing. Don't use words that mean other things. And so people see you saying those words and think you mean them because they are indeed part of everyone. And then they go to your site and they find out, oh, wait, I'm not part of everyone, apparently. So I wonder what I am. <laughs> yeah. We make clothes for everybody. What am I, a car? Like, yeah. <laughs> apparently not. So, yeah, it's very frustrating. And, and, you know, I think pushing brands to be more inclusive, especially new brands, you know, you hear, well, we can only make so many sizes. Yeah, start with the big sizes. Start with the sizes of the people who aren't accommodated by every other brand. Like, that would also be an option. And I do understand because I get a lot of responses about this, like, the issues and difficulties with making uh, plus size clothes since the industry has chosen to not accommodate people basically since the beginning that like bolt sizes and cutting table sizes and there are a bunch there are barriers there which I get but yeah like the first basic thing all we're asking is like don't lie right although also I I personally really don't buy those excuses <laughs> I, I'm I mean, sorry no I'm I totally and like you know a bajillion times more than me but my thing is like I'm sure there is a justification for this but that doesn't make it okay like fix the problem. And I bring you up all the time. I'm like smart glamour, Mallory Dunn, one woman operation, making clothes for literally every human being. So like, mm -hmm. why can't you do that? Like, why can't you put resources into that? Yeah. And let me tell you something about my table. It is small <laughs> <laughs> because I am in a studio inside of an apartment in New York city and I have a regular small folding table. Um, so that, that is so silly to me. I mean, uh, yes, bolts only come in, uh, you know, a certain width. And so when you get to a certain size, you have to start doubling or one and a halfing the amount that you buy, um, in fabric. That is true. But to me, that is not, not only is that not a barrier to making the size, it's also not a barrier to changing the price for that size because, what what truly is the root of this problem is that the fashion industry, similar to the whole of society, 
doesn't want to admit that the average person is a plus size person. And they're holding so tightly to costing everything off of a medium uh, in straight sizes as, as if a medium straight size person is the average human being when it is just not. And so if you build your entire brand off of that, then yes, when you start sizing up and making plus sizes, yes, your costing is going to be is going to be more. But you're you are uh, purposely closing your eyes to facts. <laughs> um, and if folks and if brands um, just shift their costing up to actually represent what is out there, um, you know, and maybe they shifted all of their prices at some point or, you know, also the amount they would have to shift them is very, very small. I mean, most brands that make uh, manufacture clothing and then like make them en masse, um, they are already like fighting for every tiny penny and, and nickel and dime on every single sample. So like, I guarantee the amount that everything would have to shift up would be almost unnoticeable to the average person if they wanted to do it. And in my opinion, the key is if they wanted to do it. And when you live in a fat phobic society, um, that means that the people that run businesses are also fat phobic. <laughs> um, and even if they do see that fat people exist and wear clothing, um, they may not be treating that decision to start carrying a few plus sizes and see what happens, quote unquote, um, with the same care and respect that they do carrying straight sizes. And then when it fails or quote unquote fails, according to them, doesn't sell as well, um, they blame fat people instead of blaming themselves for not doing an adequate job. Yeah, and, and not looking at the fact that like fat people get hired less and paid less than mm -hmm, thin people, mm -hmm, right? Up mm -hmm. to nineteen thousand dollars a year in some studies. And so the idea is that like, and I know a lot of lines tend to start with their like priciest line, and then like if that sells, their tour sells, then they'll like start, you know, their lower price lines, and like that's not going to be likely. Plus, there's the whole fat phobia of you know, fat people are told that we don't deserve nice things until we're thin and we're, you know, many fat people are on diets for their whole lives. And so they're not going to invest in clothes until they're thin. And mm -hmm. so fat phobia drives that. And then that's used to, as justification by, you know, that I hear a lot from people who do, who make clothes. It's just, there's so, so many layers of fat phobia within it. And I'm grateful mm -hmm. for your perspective. Um, and that you're, you talk about these things from like an inside perspective. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's bonkers to me. It's all bonkers to me. There was never a point when I was going to make clothing and then say, okay, only these people can have it. I just, it, it does. I mean, it's not something I've ever um, subscribed to in, in the entirety of my life. And I don't know. I don't know how I, how I avoided that, uh, that trap originally. I mean, I'm very aware that society is fat phobic, but for some reason I just, I don't know. I've always seen all people as people deserving of things. I guess I was raised correctly. Um, so thanks, mom and dad. But um. <laughs> yeah, well, let me feel uh, like too, like with Project when you watch Project Runway, 
No, and they do like the quote real woman challenge, and everybody like loses their whole entire shit because they have to design I for can't. not a model. Like, what uh, kind of this industry needs to unfuck itself right now? Like, the idea that you don't want to design for anyone except this person who is like one of the least likely bodies to exist in our whole culture mm-hmm. like, is ridiculous. There's what other jobs can you do? You know, like, can you do that? Mm-hmm. And in no other job should you be able to? Oh, yeah. I 1000% agree. I mean, I stopped watching that show. I used to watch it when I was in college. And then um, I stopped watching it solely because of that episode. It's only one episode of the season, but I cannot take it. I mean, just the idea that these designers have full meltdowns because they can't dress people who are average and smaller than average size just don't happen to be um, agency signed you know, five foot ten, size zero two models is bonkers to me. Who do you think is going to wear your clothes when you sell them? <laughs> how many? Yeah, how many of these people do you think are like wandering around? And if all the designers are only selling to them, like they have, a, there's six of them, and they have a lot of options. You know, <laughs> six. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just it's it's so silly. It makes no sense. Why wouldn't you want to make clothes and then have people wear them? That's the point. I don't. <laughs> I'm with oh, you. I know. <laughs> it's so painful. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure there's lots and lots of things that can answer this question. But um, aside from our tangent that we went on about um, being honest in your copy about what, what you actually carry and what you don't, what is another... Um, one or two things that you would really like to see change in the fashion industry? I mean, I would like to see there be tremendous pressure for brands to extend their sizing to include, you know, everyone Mm -hmm. that I would like to see, especially when fat activists point out like this brand doesn't accommodate, you know, anybody over a large, I would like to see not 10,000 responses explaining like why that's justified. Mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. frustrating every time it's one of the things you know I speak out about a lot of different ways that weight stigma affects us culturally but the backlash that I get when I say look this brand needs to have more sizes is so fast and so fierce and often from fat people like look every brand doesn't have to accommodate us mm-hmm. I'm like not necessarily but more brands should and it's being driven by fat phobia and not anything else but because I think partially because they are excluding people who are, you know, marginalized and oppressed and stigmatized. There's not a lot of defense for the people who they're excluding. And then there's a ton of defense for their, for their exclusion is really frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see more people in the industry speak out about that and be like, look, I happen to be a size who, you know, this brand fits, but it's not cool for me to go. And I can wear these clothes that my friend can't instead of the classic, Oh, but you know, you could buy some accessories. Like, I'm not going to buy accessories from a company that doesn't bother to fit me. Like, right. no, I'm not. No, under no circumstances. Um, so that to me is a big thing. And then so recently, Super Fit Hero has just increased their legging sizes to size 7X. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they've eliminated their smaller sizes. And suddenly all these people who, you know, ex- give me extremely detailed discussions about t- cutting table sizes and bolt sizes and you know, all of this stuff are suddenly experts in the exclusion, the oppression of exclusion. 
Mm-mm. right? Oh my God, Superfit Hero no longer fits me. This is injustice. And I'm like, look, I love Superfit Hero. And I, you know, apparently they can only do a certain number of sizes and they've chosen to fit the people who are the least served in the industry. So I'm not going to fault them for that. Like there are bigger injustices to fight than the idea that you're an extra small and you can't wear this one brand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the same. And so I'd like to see people stopping that like false comparison of like, well, if you think the brand should be inclusive, then you can't shop at Lane Bryant. Well, where can I shop then? Oh, no, 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 no. You know no. what I mean? So there's this like, and I think in a lot of times it's people who are just being disingenuous, but I think there are people who get fooled by that idea and who don't think it all the way through. But like, it's not the same thing for a thin person to be excluded from one clothing line than for fat people to be excluded from almost all of them. Uh, truly. I mean, really, that's the point right there. <laughs> like, go shop at the million other options you have, most of which you can walk directly into a store for. How about that? <laughs> right. And try stuff on. You don't have to pay $50 in shipping to get one pair of jeans that fit you. Right. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so... I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to, to end it with um, some positivity since we just did a lot of ranting that is well deserved. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what, what do you have to say to fellow plus size people, fellow flat, fat people, however they choose to identify themselves who, um, you know, are just feeling so over it from, by all of these things and maybe, um don't have the ability or i mean even just really the desire to speak out about it all the time and are just trying to live their lives <laughs> yeah so activism is appreciated but optional right and we don't always have the bandwidth to do everything all the time my thing mm-hmm. is always from like the first thing to think about and to realize is okay fat phobia and weight stigma they're real like this isn't in your head you are mm-hmm. living as part of an oppressed group of people in our culture. And mm-hmm. so that's real. So then the next question is like, what are you going to do about it? And activism is one option, but just in general, like what are you going to allow people to prevent you from doing? Mm-hmm. You know, so if you want to seek out fashion and options, it's going to be harder for you than it is for other people. And it's fair to be like, I'm just not gonna, right. But the options are out there. Smart glamor exists and amazing models like Saucy West, who's doing modeling and activism and all of these incredible things. Like you can get to be part of this community. You can get involved in this community and, you know, you can find options for yourself that can make you happy in a a situation you should not be in. Right. The thing about oppression is it's not our fault, but it becomes our problem. Right. And so, and then, you know, especially with fat phobia in our culture, they try to blame it on us. Like, well, if you don't enjoy fat phobia, then become a thin person, which is ridiculous and not how social stigma is solved. Like, accommodate your bullies and see if they stop beating you up. Nah. Fat. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are fat people living amazing lives, even under oppression. And so I think it's about like, finding little ways to do that, finding role models and people to follow and, you know, people within the industries that you're interested in, they're accommodating. Yes, absolutely. I think finding people, um, is kind of a, finding people in general is, is kind of a common, um, 
response that I get from all different types of folks talking about all different types of things on this podcast. I, you know, um, I think it's so important to find folks who are either in a common circumstance to you um, or who have common beliefs um, as you just so you can have a little bit of sense of community. It's so important. Um, it can be community can mean safety. It can mean um, empowerment. Um, and it can also just mean fun too, you know, and you, you just have people who um, have lived similar lived experiences to you. You can, you know, make friends, you can share stories, um, et cetera, and onward. Um, so it's, I, I agree. I think that's, that's, such a great suggestion um and i know that this is technically what you know what you go around and do and get paid for so i'm not gonna ask you to do the you know the full version of it but what are maybe like the top two things you would suggest uh people do when they go to the doctor and they are facing a, a fat phobic doctor uh yes yeah, so um if if it's inevitable that you have to work with a fat phobic doctor um, in my experience, first, it helps to bring an advocate. Research shows that if you bring another person with you, even if that person has no medical knowledge, right, it, it can be like your cousin Bob. But having another person in the room causes doctors to treat fat people better. Mm. And then continuously, you know, in your own mind, name the problem like, okay, this is weight stigma. This is fat phobia. Like this doctor is coming from a lens that it's reasonable to kill me if it might make me thinner. And I'm, that's not what I believe. So like, doing whatever it takes to get the care you need. So that might be saying, you know, what would you do for a thin person with this health issue? It might be saying, obviously, I'm going to go to that seminar and stomach amputation surgery. Obviously, I'm going to, you know, start this diet. But for right now, since I'm in pain, like, can we do the thing that you would do for thin people? Right? Whatever mm -hmm. it takes to get, I believe that, like, we have to put our own health care first, whatever it takes to get the health care that we need is what I'm going to recommend people do um, without mm -hmm. harming themselves. So that's, those would be my top couple. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. That's basically just like, um, you know, some harm reduction strateg strategies to just make sure that you uh, get taken care of in the moment. Yeah. And if you want, I mean, part of the thing, like, because I have all these studies and statistics in my head, my first reaction is to want to, like, go off on the doctor and start talking about like masks and I'll weigh it all because we're in sheet And so what I've learned is that that is not particularly helpful, especially because it's hard for doctors to learn from people who aren't doctors. I speak to conferences of physicians, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, and the first question is always, where did you go to medical school? Right. At the Q and A, I can get the first person who shoots their hand up as hard as they can. Oh. That's what they're gonna ask. And my answer is I didn't, if I went to medical school, I'd probably be making the same mistakes that you are. Like I had mm. to go outside of that system to get this information, which I am now trying to pass on. Uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, so instead of, you know, if you want to talk about the evidence for weight loss, ask the doctor to provide you with a single study. Look, you know, you're telling me I have to lose X amount of weight. I, can you show me one study where even the majority of people have been successful at that long-term mm -hmm. and they're not going to be able to. And so then you can say, look, you know, I, there's no evidence here. Like, what else do you have? You know, we're allowed to refuse medical treatment. So you can say, okay, so that, you know, I, I don't see any reason to believe that will work. Um, I, so I, that's not going to be for me. What else do you have? Like, how else can you treat this? How would you treat a thin person? What are the other options? Um, but put the burden of proof on them because they don't have the proof. And I think that's one of the things that has been incredibly helpful to me is that I did my own research, mm -hmm. right? It's not that somebody was telling me, no matter how much I trusted them, you know, it's the fact that 
I know it's not like I think this or I heard that I know that they don't have the research to back this up. And so that's been really helpful to me to put mm-hmm. the burden of proof on them. Show me what you have, right. you know, long-term success at this. Cause at, what the problem is almost everybody can lose weight short-term, but that does not suggest that everyone can lose weight long-term. And in fact, almost everyone gains it back long-term. So the idea and that, I'll- Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and also the way, sometimes the way that you go about uh, using, losing weight short term can also be actually more harmful than anything because your body tries to bounce back from it if it's, if it's a fast enough process. Definitely. Well, weight cycling or yo-yo dieting has been independently correlated to its own issues. Bacon and Aphromore in their paper found that the entirety of the difference between health outcomes in fat people and thin people may be explainable by the effects of weight cycling. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. In a culture where one group of people has extremely uh, limited access to medical care, is constantly being told to diet and is constantly stigmatized, you can't compare fat people's health outcomes under those circumstances to thin people's health outcomes and say, well, any differences are due to body size. Like that's mm. just not scientific. You can't do that. And so right. any study that tries to say, well, if fat people have worse health outcomes, it's because of their fat, that they're fat rather than because they are constantly being asked to diet, which is giving your body, your body less food than it needs to survive in the hopes that it will consume itself and become smaller. Right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. most fat people spend most of our lives doing that. The fact that we're constantly stigmatized, the fact that there's incredible amounts of weight stigma in medical care. Those are the things we have to fix first before we can even start to say, oh, body size is the reason for this, these negative outcomes. And that to me is like the most frustrating thing is like the, well, if fat people have you know, a worse incidence of this health problem than thin people do, then obviously weight loss is justified. Like, no, no, that's not scientific. Right. So, sorry, this is another thing I can rant about for two <laughs> hours or more. No, but. no, it's, it's totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> obviously. Um, you're clearly a wealth of knowledge on the subject and I appreciate it. Um, so where can people find you on the internet and be sure to sign up for your subscription, especially if they feel like um, they need help in, in, in these areas? Sure. Uh, Danceswithfat.org is sort of the epicenter of my work. So from there, they can find all my social media accounts. They can find um, my uh, the membership. They can find the recordings of old workshops if they are interested in those. Like all of the stuff kind of starts from there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your time and your knowledge. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for all the work you do. I just adore you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Fashion for All. Please be sure to check our show notes for information and links to our guests and their work. Be sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. For more Smart Glamour goodness, you can head to smartglamour.com and follow us on Facebook at backslash smartglamour and Instagram at smart underscore glamour. Thanks.